Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Cipriano. We're continuing our Tartan Talks series by having a conversation with Jan Beljan. Jan is the newly elected president of the American Society of Golf Course Architects. She comes from a golf background, and she is involved in a lot of projects and efforts that demonstrate why golf is just more than a game. But before we get going with Jan, we'd like to thank Better Billy Bunker for supporting this podcast. Better Billy Bunker is not only a giant supporter of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, Better Billy Bunker supports a number of industry efforts, including the work of golf course superintendents. So we're glad that they're on board, and we're really glad that Jan was able to take so much time to join us. Well, Jan, it's great to have you on the podcast. Uh, congratulations for being elected ASGCA president. I know we're going to have a great conversation and the first question I have here is, what's life like as the president of the American Society of Golf Course Architects? What's been different here about the last month since you've been elected? It's busy. It's busy. <laughs> so that's the good news, because the good news is that means our, our organization is lively and interested, and we're progressing. It's a very diverse group of people and with a lot of different backgrounds for all of our members. But we're a creative bunch, and our creativity doesn't stop with what we do for our clients. It, it reaches up to what our organization is. So uh, it, it's been busy. We're tackling a few things, uh, bringing ourselves into what is contemporary and beyond contemporary, try, being, trying to be futuristic. Uh, in the same way, we treat our clients, not just what you need today, but what are you going to need in three to five years? So that's, that's what we're looking for. Setting goals too far out, we know the world is bigger than us, the universe is bigger, so uh, we're we trying to deal in manageable spans of time. You grew up in a golf family. Your father was a golf course superintendent and, and a professional. What does being elected to a leadership position in the industry like this mean to you? I mean, what, what type of memories does it evoke? And what was the journey like to, to get to where you're at now? Oh, well, what it means to me is, uh, first I have to say that if it weren't, my, my father set an example for all of us kids. There were, there were um, my mother bore eight children, there were, and, and so each of us got to see what my dad and my mother did. And my father showed by example, he led by example. He was a uh, participant in the organization's um, that were necessary in his era, uh, being a golf course superintendent, being a golf professional, showing up at the meetings. That's where you learn then. There was no, you know, you, you didn't have social media. The phone connections weren't important, but it was attending the meetings. So my father participated in those, and he was a board member on the West Virginia Superintendents, the Western Pennsylvania Superintendents Association, he dealt with a golf professional. So what, what I learned from him is why I'm doing what I, what I am doing. Uh, I saw the sense of fulfillment that he had, and it, it means a lot to me to be able to let other people see that you can have a career, and part of that career is um, giving back even as you're working. Did you get to go to the meetings a lot as a child? Oh no, no, those were those were <laughs> those were the guys. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, those meetings I, I just remember hearing stories that my father told you. My father was uh, was good friends with with um, a, a number of the superintendents uh, uh, from the high
higher profile golf courses in in the area. You know, Oakmont. You know, having been from Pittsburgh, Oakmont. Uh, Deacon Palmer was my dad's mentor, and Deacon, of course, was Arnold Palmer's father, and he was the superintendent at Latrobe Country Club, and I grew up about eight miles from there. So it was uh, really important to me to to understand that my father, even as an adult, and when you're a child, you think adults know everything, but for me to understand that my father had somebody who was a teacher to him, a mentor to him, was a very powerful lesson. So it's that, that I've carried with me, and, and I've sought my own mentors. Um, so no, we didn't go to any of the meetings. No, that was uh, those those were the the guys things. Uh, uh, they were all, of course, there through school days. So you're not going to get out of school on a Monday to <laughs> to go to any of those day long meetings where you had education and then golf. Pretty similar to what uh, still exists. What about the golf course? How much time did you spend on the the golf course as a child? Oh my. Well, I started working on the golf course when I was 14, so I was mowing greens, tees, stairways, digging ditches, raking bunkers, whatever needed to be done, uh, obviously weekends and summers, but um, that was in the mornings. In the afternoons, I'd work in the golf shop, so in the golf shop, I was doing retail merchandising, looking after the members, uh, running events, uh, making sure that the events uh, results were were delivered to the local newspapers on Wednesdays, Thursdays, Saturdays, and Sundays. Um, I was I was the handicap computer because there was no such thing. In, and, and then I did all the handicaps um, weekly for all the members. Was it just so, a, uh, a teenage job for you, or, or did you reach a point where you thought that maybe you were building towards a, a career in golf? Well, it was um, a, a job, but it was all because it was also my life. And so I just saw whatever it is I was going to do was going to be an extension of what I was already doing. I understood uh, customer service. I understood uh, how important science was. I understood how important um, activity was, that recreation was to people. So how could I use that understanding to um, have a career? And, And so I studied landscape architecture. And through landscape architecture, I knew that you could um, offer both verbally and graphically your ideas about how things can be. So that was, um, uh, so I, I knew that I was going to do it as a young teenager. I didn't know, but once I understood landscape architecture was an option, that was, that was a pretty easy decision. Was your dad a tinker at the golf courses as a superintendent? Did he move bunkers around? Did he do things that maybe we would classify as in-house golf course architecture? Well, he did that at, at courses uh, that he where he was after we left the course that he did the original design for, yes, because uh, uh, understanding that he and his five brothers were all club professionals. So he was the second youngest of those six boys, and there was some pretty fierce competition, as you might imagine. And, uh, the, you know, one of the real joys that I had, and I didn't know that's what it was when I was, a, you know, in, in single-digit ages, but I just I didn't understand all the things that my father and my uncles were talking about when they discussed the golf courses they'd played and the people against whom they played and with whom they played. But I just remembered the enthusiasm and, and the fun that they had and, you know, talking about all of these things because they were reliving the experiences they had. And the experiences of competition, the experiences of strategy, the ex- of, of aesthetics, 
all of those things. Um, uh, I, I don't know how many children can ever hear their parents talk about their work and be enthusiastic about it. It was there for me, and and so I was uh, uh, privileged to hear my dad talk about these these golf courses and say, oh well, this worked on this hole at this golf course. This is a very similar hole here. So we could add this and make it a better golf hole, make it more strategic or make it more friendly depending on who was playing and from what set of tees. So, yes, he, was, he wasn't He was a tinkerer because uh, tinkering on a golf course is much more expensive than tinkering on something else. It requires time, it requires equipment, and it requires uh, you know, a certain amount of wherewithal to invest in the materials as well as the labor. So you grow up around the golf course and you get a landscape architecture uh, degree. What was it like after that? Explain your path from graduating with a landscape architecture degree to becoming a golf course architect. What, what steps did you have to take? Oh, well, my, my path was an unusual one. It's the uh, destiny in action kind of uh, 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 path. Is you, you don't know. It's being in the right place at the right time and meeting the right person. Uh, I was working uh, with, with a Davy Tree Expert company at the time in Pittsburgh, and they had a lawn care division. Because of my background in um, you know, golf course management at the time, and because of my background as a landscape architect and my knowledge of plant materials, I had um, the uh, North Hills, Oakmont, Fox Chapel area in Pittsburgh as, as my um, territory to do uh, I was a sales rep and technician, so I was driving a 1,500-gallon eight-speed tanker truck for the Davy Tree Expert Company, and I would look at people's lawns and tell them what kind of weeds, grasses, and insects were in the lawn and how much and what kind of fertilizer, insecticide, um, herbicide would be work on their, on their lawns. And then they, you know, my job was to, to sell and then to be the technician who, who took care of it. So one of my clients was in Fox Chapel, and we were meant to give our business cards as we either entered or departed the property. And when I, when one of my clients, his secretary, had my business card, gave it to him, he asked to see me. Well, he was surprised when I walked in because he was expecting a nephew, not a niece, of either Willie or Carl Belgian, two of my uncles who are prominent pros in the Pittsburgh area. And um, we struck up a friendship, and he said, uh, well, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? And I told him several of the opportunities I had at the time. He said, well, there's somebody I, who I think would be interested in you and in whom you would be interested. Um, he's in Florida, and he's a golf course architect, and he would like to have somebody. Um, he needs somebody now, and I know because I'm, I'm a member of, uh, at one of the clubs. Well, this man happened to be Jack Mahaffey, who was um, at uh, Oakmont Country Club. He was on the executive committee for, for the uh, USGA. He was a superb uh, Pennsylvania amateur champion. He just knew everything and everybody in golf in the Pittsburgh area. But he was a member at Jupiter Hills Club, which was a Tom Fazio, George Fazio, Tom Fazio design. So he introduced me to Tom Fazio at the veranda of Oakmont Country Club, and 
and we chatted a bit, and Tom asked me to come for a second interview in Florida, and I did, and he said, when can you come to work? I said, I need to give two weeks' notice, and I did, and I did, and so that's how it started. So it wasn't that I took any steps so much as the doors were there, and I just had to step through. You mentioned that the gentleman in Pittsburgh was surprised that you weren't a, a nephew, and you also said that your father was in the meetings were just the guys. Did you realize yes. that you were setting a path? You were kind of being a trailblazer, being one of the um, few women getting involved in, in golf? No, because it was what I did. It was just my life. And I, I wasn't comparing myself to anybody. You know, uh, that's, that's um, I didn't think of it as anything unusual because it was my life. Hadn't done, I hadn't done anything that was um, different for me. Have you thought that throughout your entire career? Yes. We learned as, as children that everybody has a job. I mean, even in our family, because it was a big family, all of us kids have job, had jobs in the family. That was what made it the family. We depended upon one another to make sure all the tasks were done that were necessary to, to have a, a smooth family life. And so everybody did dishes, everybody mowed the lawn, everybody had a garden, everybody weeded and planted gardens. So and that didn't matter if you were a boy or a girl, the jobs were all the same. There was no distinction about, you, oh, if you're a boy, you can only do this. If you're a girl, you can only do that. So that was a, it was a great privilege to have had that upbringing. Like yourself, I'm from western Pennsylvania. I grew up around the western Pennsylvania golf scene. What was it like going from Pittsburgh to South Florida, those two places couldn't be any more different. Oh, you're 100% correct there. <laughs> you're 100% correct. And, and when I moved here, it was pretty interesting because I moved to the Jupiter area. It's where I, I went to work, and, and I was very surprised that even though it was a, uh, an area of, of seasonal wealth, I mean, seasonal meaning that the people came to South Florida in the winter who could afford to do that, uh, that there was not as much culture. I uh, expected more cultural opportunities, such as you would find in Pittsburgh with the museums and the opera and, and other places to you know, for the arts. And I was surprised at how little there was available. So that was a bit different. But uh, more importantly, I suppose, the whole climate, the climate was different. Uh, the perpetual sun, it took me about five years to become accustomed to the perpetual sun, kind of like those easy-on-the-eyes, gray days, overcast days where you didn't need to wear sunglasses in, in you know, up, up north. So, But uh, now I've acclimated. And the other part is that that was uh, uh, I was pretty, pretty sound horticulturally. Uh, as a landscape architect, I was probably one of the, one of the few in my class who reveled in um, and knowing and understanding plants, and part of that's because I grew up with that. I grew up with being outdoors and gardening and uh, maintaining uh, plants, being in the woods. So those, those, that was easy for me. But when I came to Florida, I had to learn a whole new set of friends, a whole new set of, of landscape plants. So I've, uh, I've probably quadrupled my, my horticultural friends since I've moved to Florida. How important are plants to a golf course, especially in Florida? And how much thought do you give to the plants when you're doing design plans? That's something we really haven't talked a lot about on these podcasts the last few years. To me, they're much more important than people might imagine. Uh, and it's not just in Florida, it's everywhere. 
uh, you've done plenty of podcasts with many golf course architects and many golf course superintendents who talk about shade issues. Well, the shade generally comes from plant materials as opposed to buildings or rock outcroppings or mountains, although certainly that's true. But uh, the things that you can control certainly are the, the, the tallest of the three dimensions, and that would be trees. So if you have uh, trees, regardless of whether what part of the country you are, are, are pretty important, it's not just for the shade that's cast, uh, but for leaf litter, for branch litter, for um, uh, root um, invasion into teas, greens, bunkers, um, th- those the trees are very important. So the selection thereof, the protection you might want to have between golf holes, backdrops, if they're necessary or not, some people believe, and, and usually, um, and probably more so in the past than now, because when people relied on their own eyes to say, well, it's this far from where my golf ball is to the flagstick, uh, they always wanted the backdrop to help define that distance. And if there was no backdrop, then part, that's part of the strategy, too, is not having a backdrop. So you have a backdrop, you've got screening, what's off the property, what's on the property between golf holes or for protection. So a lot of those things are important, and some people think that trees are beautifying and because they've seen something, they say, oh, well, we need more of that, and they put in saplings, small trees, and the next thing they don't understand how large they grow and what the impact will be on the space. I'm sure you've played any number of golf courses where it's very narrow, not just at the tee, teeing areas, but also down the entire length of the hole because the trees have grown larger than had been anticipated 20, 30, 40 years earlier. Trees are vital. I think about, um, I think about them a lot, and I try to plan for um, what the ultimate size of any tree is. Uh, I, when I deal with my clients, I talk about things in terms of a 5- to 10-year outlook uh, because I know that in 10 years, chances are the entire Green Committee will be different. And so what they, will, what they may want may be different, too. So uh, if, you, if you plan that far out, just have good foundation, people can change the, the other parts of the aesthetics, shrubs, or if they care to have perennials or other ground covers, those, those are more easily... Um, chosen, taken in, or put in, taken out, than, than, than trees. So I, I think about it a lot in Florida. I think about it a lot because of, um, you know, I think about in terms of hurricanes. If there's a hurricane, what trees are going to be more brittle, can't tolerate the wind, and if they're gone, how does this golf course play? So um, you can't count on the microbursts, the little mini tornadoes that can probably destroy anything, but there are some plant materials in Florida, they're much more hurricane-resistant than others. So having having them dashed in or having a spine of them so that if there is a storm, you have some protection. You may not have had all of which you did have, but you'll have some so that you can have some assurance of safety. What was it like working in the Fazio office? What did you learn there, and what were some talents that, that you brought to the firm uh, when you started working there? There's 
no way that I could ever say thank you enough to Tom Fazio for asking me to be part of his team. Um, I learned so much from him, just as a, not just as a golf course architect, but he's a, a terrific businessman and he's a real people person. So just being able to observe Tom when he dealt with clients and when he dealt with challenges and when he dealt with the good things too, and he hasn't changed from you know from when I first met him to now. I, he's he's the same person. So, uh, which is remarkable, you know, a man who's had the success he's had and he's just the same person as he was. So uh, that's that to me is thrilling. But Tom made it really easy for me to learn because his own background when he started with his uncle, they were um, they did a lot of design build. And so and they were also in the operations. They they had a golf course and so he understood what had to be practical. So that sort of thing was when when you deal in practicality, you know, form following function, it's pretty easy to learn what things work, what things don't work, and, and if, when you understand the why, the how becomes a lot easier to do. And, uh, there were several field personnel at the time that I started with Tom. I was the only person he had doing work in the office, but there were uh, he, he had people in the field, and um, in, among them were his brother Jim Fazio and then Charlie Feely, who was a PGA professional who started working with, with George, and then Andy Banfield, um, so all of those people were instrumental in, in teaching me by example, just making comments, well, we do this, this because of this, we do that because of that. And the other part is, is that as every, every project is different, every site is different. What the client wants versus what the client needs, all of those things are different. And so uh, it's, it's being able to uh, catalog those things and say, well, this worked at this place and it may work here too. That worked at this place, but it won't work here because of whatever constraints are. You've sent me a lot of great information and you've done some awesome things. One of the things I, I want to talk about is the whole concept of scoring tees. At what point did you realize that some of these golf courses were too long and how have you been able to implement uh, this tee system into making golf enjoyable for all players? Well, I, I recognized that they were too long from long ago uh, when I was a, a beginning player. And, you know, one of the things that I, and, and how I came up with the concept, I just thought about my father and my uncles, who all taught golf, too, as golf professionals. And I remember them talking uh, about their caddy days. And when they were caddies, and this was, you know, pre-World War II, they, they talked about um, the women for whom they caddied. And, and, and the era was different because there wasn't the, you know, most golf courses didn't have the kind of irrigation systems that we have now. But if you played golf in western Pennsylvania, uh, there were a lot of hills, and so you went downhill and then you went uphill. So where were the tees so that it made it possible for everybody to advance the ball? When the summer, everybody could have career drives if it was, if it was dry because the, the ground would be very hard and the ball would go far. But as, as we came up with the irrigation systems and the desire was to have um, greener turf, longer and denser and thicker, then the, the drives kind of diminished, especially for those with slower club head speeds. So of all, I've, I've in, innately known this. And then when my dad did the design on the golf course where I grew up, because he was also the golf professional, it was important to have everybody have, have a positive experience. 
and that meant women too. Uh, this was a family club, and uh, there were a number of couples who came. And it was uh, no fun for the husbands or the wives if the wives didn't have a good experience, if they didn't um, advance the ball, if they didn't took too many strokes on the golf hole. So my dad actually positioned the tees further forward than was typical in that era of the 60s. Um, so I remembered that, and I said, well, this is, this is something. And I made an effort when I started my own business back in 2009. I said, now I, I can make a bigger difference now uh, because the, the client, the, the whole economy was different and what people uh, wanted and recognized the need for was different. And I said, there's got to be a way to have more women have more fun playing golf. And I was looking at the USGA course ratings and how courses are rated, and I looked at the, their um, handicap statistics, and uh, with 2 million, 2 million entries into the handicap indices, that's a pretty good base from which to draw information. It's not 20, it's not 200, it's not even 2,000. 2 million is a pretty big number, so you can get a pretty good feel for what, what is and what isn't. One of the things that I recognized, I looked at what the how the USGA defined um, bogey golfers, and um, you know a male bogey golfer was defined as somebody who had a handicap between 18 and 22, yet the female bogey golfer was defined as somebody who had a handicap between 22 and 26. So I'm trying to think, well, where do these four strokes go? Why is that? And um, the obvious answer was length. If you played any courses, especially in the Northeast, where golf in the U.S. Uh, proliferated early, um, there were maybe three sets of markers, typical red, white, and blue, and, and the red markers were forward, and you might have a yardage of 54 to 5,600 yards as the shortest yardage. Well, that might have worked in an era when the ground was hard and the balls would go farther, but if there would, but once you had more irrigation and the balls didn't roll as far, then it made a big difference in the people who had the slower club head speeds, whether they were older men or women or juniors. So after doing that research and then thinking about how far women actually hit the golf ball, uh, I looked at um, Bill Amick. I don't know if you've spoken. I don't think you've spoken to Bill Amick yet. Yeah, he was actually he was actually one of our early Tartan Talk guests. So then you know from him, he's done did a lot of research on on um, how far people hit the golf ball. So in looking at his work and and then trying to determine the percentages of people who played at what handicap. Then I said, well, there's fully 50% of women have a handicap over 26. So I called them bogey plus players. And then I, in doing the math, I found that fully 10% of women have a handicap, 10.1% actually, of women have a handicap between index between 39 and 40.4. But guess what? They still play golf. Imagine what would happen if more women had more success. And the way, we, the way they would have more success is they would feel success by getting closer to what they're, they're taught. All of us are taught to play against par. So if you go to a par four and all of a sudden
sudden it's taking you six or seven or eight strokes to even get on the green before you can two putt, that doesn't feel like success. But if you and so what was what was the limiting factor there? The limiting factor was the slow club head speed. It was the distance um, that the ball would go if you don't have if you don't swing fast. And there's still thousands of golf courses out there where the the shortest yardage is somewhere between 52 and 5,500 yards. If one of those clubs or one of those facilities wants to add a scoring tee, what's the process like? How, how do you get that in motion and do it effectively? Well, I'm working with a, a number of different ones, uh, mm-hmm. golf courses right now, and, and actually I'm just institu- instituting scoring tees up at on top of the world up in Ocala, Florida. We're doing that work here this summer. But it's uh, evaluating, because it's a retrofit, it's a completely different process if you're doing new construction versus if you're retrofitting a golf course. Uh, and budget has something to do with it. The existing members have something to do with it. But it's understanding the line of play, where the landing area is for that, for that person. You know, I seek to have a total yardage. It's, if the, if the um, uh, average, if the bogey male golfer is playing somewhere at 6,300, 6,300, 6,500 yards, then uh, want to have kind of a proportionate um, experience for the people with a slower club head speed. So is where does this ball need to land for that slower club head speed player to hit a similar club into the green? And that gives me a yardage somewhere between 4,000 and 4,200. Certainly there are many courses that, that you could have play even shorter. Um, but um, most retrofits, people don't want to see a formal tee so far forward on a golf course. Uh, so it's, uh, so the process would be um, evaluating the golf course for what the existing yardages are from the very tips to what the current forward markers are, and then figuring out the line of play where the landing area should be so that the players have a fair shot into the green. Some of those tees end up being placed um, maybe further back than I would otherwise put them because of a carry. And the carry might be a what's now called a penalty area or a lake, bunker, some other um, natural hazard. So we want them to stop short of it so they can then clear. So it may take, they, they may not be able to get on in regulation, but they'll be get, get on maybe in one or two strokes. Um, fewer than they otherwise would. It's understanding what the alignment is, what's the target line, where's the landing area, what kind of shot do they have into the green from there, what's the relationship to irrigation, what's the relationship to golf cart path, Um, contours, what's the relationship when you're retrofitting, uh, putting a a tee just because it's the yardage in a in a hollow, in a swale at the bottom of the hill, is that the best place to put it? Probably not. So it's, every golf hole is different, but it's, it's trying to get the golf course to play more fairly for that player. Jan, not only are you involved in making the game more enjoyable for players of all, all skill levels, you're also involved in making the, the game more inclusive. Explain what the National Alliance for Accessible Golf is for our listeners that don't know, and what is your relationship like with that organization, and what are some of the goals of those efforts? Well, the 
the, the primary goal is to have golf be more inclusive to people with disabilities. And that means people who are um, perhaps you know, the most recognizable might be wounded warriors, but certainly uh, children with, dis with disabilities, such as those who might be in, in Special Olympics. Um, multiple people have seen the um, video of Amy with, with uh, Gary Woodland. And what a, what a great and heartwarming uh, story that's come to be. It's also for people who have uh, who are recovering from strokes or from some other kind of injury to get them. If they can play from, this, from um, um, a, a set of tees further forward, they can have fun. They become included back in to the, to, to the, the, with their friends in playing golf. So just it's inclusion, and it's, it means that people with disabilities, whether they're adults or children, are playing with people who don't have disabilities. Uh, if you didn't know this, the USGA and RNA created a modified set of rules of golf for people with disabilities, and they're not. Uh, and of course, when there are, are, are competitive events, it depends on what everybody agrees to in advance of the event of what what the, which of those. Um, rules are, are um, used or not but it's a it's a very broad uh, range and I, I think to, for people to see one of the things that's exciting to me is is having seen um, on on TV uh, the inclusivity of people with disabilities you've seen on the on the on the show glee the character Artie who is in a wheelchair um, who is who is part of the course? You see Joe Swanson in Family Guy. He's a paraplegic uh, cop. You may have seen um, Shot Makers on the Golf Channel, where they had the the uh, uh, tournament at, at Top Golf, and there were two wounded warriors there participating. So just seeing that golf is is uh, essential to people with disabilities, but also recognizing that uh, how valuable golf is to people who have unseen disabilities, people with PTSD. Uh, you know Renee Powell, who's very close there. She runs a program for women uh, veterans who have PTSD. And it makes a difference for these women to come together as a community at, because they know they can share experiences that among themselves they all know, but those of us who haven't had that kind of experience, we can't identify. So golf, golf provides great health and wellness for, for anybody who can see it that way. If you haven't seen, um, there's been a lot of studies done, uh, especially in England and Australia. Uh, University of St. Andrews in Edinburgh, Scotland, released some research on the health benefits of golf spectating. Golf spectating, not even playing, but spectating. It said 83% of the people who spectated at a golf tournament met or exceeded the 10,000 steps. That, that are prescribed, and they're in the green space. They're socializing with friends, and they're and they're watching their sporting heroes. And for all of us, um, you know, in, including people with disabilities in golf, they get the same opportunity to socialize, not just with people who have a disability, but for people who who don't have a disability. Okay, so we're going to go to the, the trifecta of great things here. So not only are you making golf more enjoyable, you're working to make it more inclusive, you're also involved in a project in Florida to 
introduce golf careers to people. Explain to our listeners what you're doing at South Fork High School. Well, South Fork High School was a was a um, had a three par threes and a driving range created about uh, 20 25 years ago. Chuck Ankrum was the original uh, architect there, and this was part of a program of a of a career tech um, high school. When the economy changed, um, the money became different, and and so it kind of became fallow. Well, now the school board has decided to resurrect this, and we're creating a turf learning center. So I redesigned the three part threes, and have included a short game area, and we'll resurrect the the driving range too. So there are really five. There's Three, three par three golf holes, short game area, and a driving range. And that's five elements that we hope to do one of those elements every year. And the high school students who are in the landscape design program uh, will participate in the design, the construction, uh, and the maintenance of, of this facility. And this is important because uh, the, the students actually get to understand why math is needed, why science is needed, why English is needed, so that they can do the math to do the calculations of, of areas. They have the science to understand how things are going to grow. They have the English language so that they can discuss what they need, why it's needed, to be persuasive to uh, um, people uh, who will hire them, business owners, and golf professionals, I will tell you that um, in, in this school, there have been at least a half a dozen uh, superintendents came out of this high school. They may have gone to Lake City Community College, uh, which is now Gateway College now. Okay, yeah. Um, but some of them just went straight from high school to careers on the golf course, and, and they're now successful. We'd like to have these students who maybe don't want to go to college or can't afford to go to college still have an opportunity to have a career that where they, they, they earn decent money and um, they don't have to be paying back college debt. They'll learn the aspects of design, planning, construction. Um, they'll have the hands-on experience. When people, when golf course superintendents in Martin County, where this school is, and the adjacent counties of Palm Beach and Indian River uh, County, when they understand these graduates come out uh, of, of this school with this experience, what those superintendents will know is there's somebody who has is sophisticated about golf, who wants to be in the business, and who understands how to work and how to be a team player. All of those things are necessary in today's world. You've, you've done stories about how difficult it is to find laborers. Well, these, these youngsters can start as laborers, but because they have this understanding, they may step up into some other positions more rapidly than others. So I this is really see this as a pipeline for, for future employees um, uh, and, and, for, and as a, if, if these youngsters want to start their own businesses. They'll have the knowledge about what it can, what it takes to have, well, operate their own business. So it's really, really important. It's exciting, very exciting. Jan, you've reached a point in your career where you've gone above and beyond to, to give back to the game of golf. 
How proud would your dad and uncles be of you right now? Oh, my gosh. They, they, they were proud when I was hired by Tom Fancy. Are you kidding? <laughs> so, so, so to see the, the accomplishments, I think there's, there are no words that any parent could have for um, the kind of success that, that I've been privileged to, to be part of and to have, have the support and encouragement of so many, so many people. Um, it's, it's just, um, it means a lot to me personally just to have people who, um, who, who recognize that it's hard work that makes a difference and willingness to see that everybody can win. So I think my, my parents and my uncles would be, um, uh, they would be duly proud. And last thing here, you're following some uh, terrific ASGCA presidents. Jeff Bloom was the president last year, and then John Sanford and Greg Martin. What are your goals for the next year? What are you going to do to put your own little imprint on things, and what are you going to do to continue on the work that they did? Well, it's exactly that. It's continuing the work that they've done. You know, they set a pretty high standard, but part of part of what I see is part of their success and that I would hope to be successful for me for, for the organization is there's a continuity of purpose. You know, we want to have we, we, it's, it's the professionalism that we want uh, people to understand. We want them to see that um, uh, golf course architects, ASGCA members are there to help their clients um, have better projects, more economically done, with, with more thought to the future. Um, that uh, the design excellence that we have and that you have been so supportive of, we in, in, in the Tartan podcast, so many of our, goal, uh, our members are um, get recognition and get somebody to hear them and get to hear their, their philosophies and what they've done that are, these folks are not the ones who are commonly in print or, or on film. And so it's very meaningful that everybody understands that just because you don't have a high-profile work doesn't mean that you aren't not just good, but great. So um, that's important. It's important for our members to, to me, for all of our members, to have that kind of appreciation. And, and it's to um, help all of our members find additional ways for people to have fun on a golf course. There are more... More of our, our, our members are doing short game areas and alternate facilities that are helping expose more people to the game of golf. And when they're exposed, retaining them because they're having fun. Um, the, the era of um, difficult is not over, but I think more people, um, more, more people have fun. I think one of the, one of the important things I've heard say is, is uh, you know, exercises work, play is fun, the result's the same. So if you can play golf and it's fun, then you're going to come back and um, play more. And it's such a healthy pursuit. From, um, so to, to follow in the footsteps, everybody, everybody who's preceded me has set a good stage for me to just pick up where they where they left off and to, and to carry on that same torch. Well, Jan, this was awesome having you on the podcast. Uh, thanks a lot for everything that you do for everybody in the golf 
industry, and we look forward to catching up with you here over the next year as you hold this role, and we look forward to hearing more about your projects, especially the one at South Fork High School. Well, thank you so much, Guy, for your interest and for doing all that you do for all of our ASTCA members. It's, uh, we, we're, we're so proud to be uh, allied with you. Thank you so much.